Welcome back to Cranks at Dawn, and uh, thanks to uh, Doc Gordon, who's with me today. And Doc, uh, you are one of the co-hosts of uh, a podcast called uh, The War on Cars. Uh, can you uh, give us an, just a brief introduction to who you are and what brought you into cycling? Uh, or uh, you could say, what brought about the, the podcast War on Cars? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on on your podcast. The War on Cars, uh, you know, I think for some European listeners might not understand the title. It's meant ironically. So in North America, anytime you take a single parking space, it doesn't matter if you're taking one parking space out of 500 or 5,000, people will ac- accuse you of waging a war on cars. Um, doesn't matter if you're doing it to promote safety or put in better bus service, you're waging a war on cars. So we took that title and are are using it somewhat ironically. Um, I live in Brooklyn, New York. I'm a safe streets advocate. I work in in television. That's my sort of day job. And um, I've been doing bicycle and safe streets advocacy for well over 10 years. I have a blog called Brooklyn Spoke. Um, I'm online at Brooklyn Spoke on Twitter and do a lot of organizing and advocacy here in my neighborhood and in Brooklyn and in New York in general and do a lot of writing on the subject as well. The podcast uh, is co-hosted by my friend Aaron Napersek, who is a founder of Streets Blog, and uh, Sarah Goodyear, who's a journalist who also covers Safe Streets. And, and we've been talking about doing a podcast for quite some time and uh, started this one up about two years, a little more than two years ago. And how has, uh, how has the podcast been, uh, been received by, by the audience? It's great. I, I'm really grateful uh, and humbled by the reception it has received. We have a really enthusiastic and dedicated listenership, and it's growing all the time. You know, our, our philosophy behind the podcast is not to be a very um, policy or wonky uh, discussion every week. We want to get at sort of the root of the cultural problem of cars, why we're so dependent on automobiles in our daily lives what we can do to undo that dependence. Um, and, you know, these aren't necessarily policy questions. They, they involve policy, but they are cultural questions, especially in the United States, um, especially outside of New York, where cars play an oversized role in the daily lives of, of most Americans. So this thing about the role of the car, uh, I think, I mean, uh, I, I live in, in, in Europe and I think compared to, to most European countries, and if you compare that to, to the US, you will see that the dependency on cars is much, much bigger in the US. Uh, uh, the, I'm just thinking when, when, I, when I hear the title, The War on Cars, it's, it's, it's a little, it's, it's fairly aggressive. Let's just be honest. That's an aggressive title. Uh, that war is the, is is really a war, or is it more a development of society going uh, in the direction of something else than cars in the U.S.? I think here in the United States, you know, anytime you push back against the status quo, you're accused of waging a war on on anything. Um, very famously, conservative right wing media talks about a war on Christmas, simply because you acknowledge that other holidays exist in December you're accused of waging a war on Christmas. So everything in the U.S. tends to be a little amped up. And you know, cars have such a primary role in the lives of hundreds of millions of Americans that it's very hard for them to see even a 1% or 2% tweak in how their streets work. 
And so people get very defensive. And in talking about a war on anything, it's really a war on cities and a war on people. We have 40,000 or more Americans killed every year in car crashes, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands more injured, you know, millions of people worldwide killed, not to mention the climate change effects, air pollution, the damage they just do to the cohesion of our neighborhoods and societies, the disparate ways they impact people of color, the ways they divide up communities. So cars have been pretty successful at waging a war on on people, on cities for nearly a hundred years. And we're just we're just starting to push back. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's it, it's interesting because I, mean, I I actually uh, when I was studying back in uh, back in the in the days I actually lived for for uh, half a year in New Orleans in the US. So and and I I bought a cheap bike going from from the room that I rented to the university. It was a short ride, you know, five uh, two and a half miles, five kilometers or something like that. Uh, but it was it was so obvious that the car had a a uh, very dominant role and everything that I've heard or seen on TV about the US turned out to be true that's one thing and then I also quickly realized that very f- even though people are okay with a the bicycle they uh, it was difficult for people to actually know how to uh, how to uh, react when they saw a bicycle how fast is it coming uh, do I have to stop what are the rules here uh, is that something that you sense when you ride a bicycle in New York that People are actually, okay, what what kind of device is this? How should I react when I see it? Yes. I mean, even in New York, which is a big walking and transit town compared to the rest of the United States, I think bicycles are kind of a third thing. They're not cars, but they're also not pedestrians. And yet, you know, when you're on a bike, you're about as vulnerable as you are if you're on foot. You're not encased in metal. If you if you get into a crash, you can get seriously hurt. Um, And so drivers, they don't know how to react. How fast can I pass someone? How close can I pass someone? The rules are not taught in our driver's education courses, no matter what state you're in. There's very little, if anything, to do with bicycling and how you should interact with them. Yeah. And I, I mean, I make it sound like it's, it's something specific for the U.S. Let's be honest; we we experience a lot of that over here as well. So it's not that uh, it's it's not that uh, people here are just love bicycles, and they they. I mean, people pass us way too close, uh, way too often, and you know, don't uh, yield when they have to, and things like that. So so definitely, we see it here as well. I, I think also that you know, in in North America and in a lot of other cities around the world bicyclists are seen as this weird species that's separate from drivers and pedestrians. And so therefore, people don't know how to relate. I often hear people talk about the Netherlands or uh, Danish cities like Copenhagen, and they say, oh, well, there, the drivers all know how to interact with cyclists. And it's, well, the reason they know how to interact with cyclists is because most of those drivers also are cyclists. There isn't a clear division between one mode or the rest. It's just A car is a tool you're using when you can't use other means. Um, so it, it isn't as if a, a Dutch driver has some better sense of how to interact with uh, cyclists because they teach them differently. It's it's because they have the actual experience of being on a bike. You know, I think I'm a better driver here in New York when I do get behind the wheel of a car because I'm so used to experiencing the city as a cyclist, as a pedestrian, and I know there's a lot I need to look out for. 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think uh, when, when I when I lived in, the, in New Orleans, one of the things I also realized is that it's it's very difficult to you you know to to actually live a normal life with without a car. I remember I just wanted to go to the cinema. I had to go somewhere to the suburbs, and I couldn't get there. Uh, without actually having a car or renting a car, borrowing a car. So you are, most, as you said in the beginning, most of the people are very, very dependent on the cars, whether they like it or not. Uh, so they never get the experience to actually ride the bicycle as, as, as well. And I think you're absolutely right that uh, in Denmark, uh, Netherlands and so on, most people can relate to both. Uh, and that, that probably makes a huge difference. Yes, and, and you hit on something that I think is the core philosophy of our podcast, which is that the price of participation in American society, Canadian society, British society, depending on where you live, shouldn't be a thirty or $40,000 automobile. You should just be able to walk, bike, or take transit to where you need to go. And when you have the cost of admission – to society being a monthly payment on a car, maintenance, gasoline, other expenses, that really creates a huge burden on people. And, and so what, what we want to do is really get people to think about this albatross that is hanging around their neck, weighing them down, and how their lives could actually be improved if they had more options than just getting in the car every time. Mm, yeah, I think you at one of the episodes in your podcast, I think you had this voicemail from one of your listeners talking about the queue that she had seen to these places where they hand out free food to to families struggling. Uh, and that was a queue of a, a long line of people in their cars coming to pick up this, this uh, support that they could get. And it was just this observation that these people, it's it's not because they prioritize the car over food or families, it's because they have to, they cannot they cannot live without the car, so they need to pr- spend the money on a car instead of other things. Oh, for sure. In America, you could probably go without a house and without food before you could go without a car because a car is, uh, you know, a car provides your access to jobs. A car provides your access to family, medical care, um, social interactions, you know, economic opportunity in general. And it, it really does say something about society that those lines that you saw for food banks and food distribution were just automobile dependent. And, you know, and, and as that person said in their voicemail, it's not to blame those people. They just don't have a choice. They're operating within a system where if you don't have a car, what are you going to do? You wouldn't be able to access those things. Exactly, exactly. So another thing that I, I just wanted to, to to touch on as well, and, and you have a few episodes on that, that's uh, what, I, what, what, uh, what you could say cars as weapons. And then compared to bicycles as a tool for uh, for, uh, for 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 protest uh, that's being used in in demonstrations and protests and so on. Uh, if you talk about cars as weapons, uh, obviously we've all seen you know terrorist actions and so on using trucks and cars and so on. But when listening to the Warren Cars podcast, uh, it kind of occurred to me that okay, the car has a dominant position in terms of what you can basically get away with. Uh, can you tell us something about that? Right. So there's kind of two problems. One, obviously, is the growing number of people who are using their cars to hit or run over protesters who are in the street. Um, we saw that in Charlottesville, Virginia, very infamously, where a white nationalist 
ran over and killed a protester. There have been incidents here in New York where I live where the police used their cars to run over protesters who they said were surrounding their cars, even though video showed that not to be entirely true. Um, And in most cases, not all, uh, drivers often get away with it. They can just claim they feared for their life. They were surrounded. They didn't know how they were going to get out. The protesters were trying to pull them from their car, whatever excuse they want to give and they will get away with it. That wasn't the case in Charlottesville. There are other instances where that has not been the case, but most of the time it it is. And that is directly related to, we had a law professor, Greg Schill, on our program, um, to a general sense in the U.S. that when you hit someone with your car, it's just an accident. It's, It's, oops, I didn't mean it. I didn't see them. They came out of nowhere. And so because America is so car dependent, we shouldn't penalize people when crashes occur because it could happen to anybody. Um, That's a real difference between places like the Netherlands and here where in the Netherlands, for example, there's strict liability. If a driver hits a cyclist or a pedestrian, it is assumed that the driver did something wrong and that needs to be investigated. Here, it's just sort of like exchange insurance information and be on your way. And, you know, usually the pedestrian or the cyclist, because they're not encased in metal, is the one who has to deal with the often lifelong consequences of, of surgeries, of physical uh, disability, things like that. Um, so those two things, these two things are related, that when you, when you live in a society where just you're driving to the grocery store and you are looking at your phone or distracted by something in the car and you hit someone, and a jury made up of drivers and judges who, who drive let you off, basically, or the cops don't even arrest you because they have a windshield perspective as well, it does feel like that's going to inevitably lead to a situation where people start doing it intentionally and also getting away with it. Yeah, that's interesting that the fact that that it's, it's basically just considered an unavoidable, something, something that you cannot avoid is an accident, uh, can lead to people thinking, okay, it's actually okay to do it on purpose as well. Uh, that's, uh, that's scary, to be honest. Well, I mean, I think the idea is that like, so long as you don't say, well, you're right, I meant to run that person over, I saw that person, I didn't like them, I think they're bad people, those people who are in the street, and I wanted to harm as many of them as I possibly could, as long as you don't say that, you're you're fine. You just need to say, hey, look, I was afraid. I didn't see them. I didn't know what to do. Um, and if you have that plausible deniability, you can get away with it. Yeah. But this thing about that, you know, a car or a truck hitting a cyclist or a pedestrian or something like that is just something unavoidable happening. I mean, we see we see that. I think it, it's in, in the, uh, on, on the media as well how they cover these things because I once saw a discussion here that – Every time you read about someone being hit by a car or killed or a truck, the headline will be pedestrian ended up under a truck. Uh, ended up? What is that about? It's not that the truck hit the pedestrian or uh, something like that. No, no. By by just pure coincidence, the pedestrian was suddenly under the truck, and that that was the accident. So it's 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 whole, in, in the whole terminology around how we describe these situations as well, probably. Right. You would never say, you know, person shot by gun. But uh, in the U.S., we often see news reports that say person hit by car, as opposed to driver strikes pedestrian. Uh, 
it's a very passive way of doing it as opposed to the more active way that tells you what actually happened. Um, and often in the U.S., these things are just reported as like traffic reports. You know, there, there was an incident on I-495, uh, slowed traffic down, but everything's open again. The police cleaned it up and everything's fine. Mm, everything's fine. Yeah, that's true. So moving on to the bicycles as pro, as a tool for protest, uh, you had the, the the episode with the with the, the street riders, street riders. Yeah, exactly. Where they actually you know mobilize a lot of protest around using the bicycle. Yeah, you know it, it's not unusual for bicycles to be a symbol of protest. The, the, there was the Provo movement in Amsterdam in the '60s and '70s, um, but here in the U.S. It's also not unusual. We've had critical mass, which was, you know, movements of people taking over streets with their bikes um, uh, for environmental, for traffic reasons. And that, that dates back to the 80s and 90s, if not earlier. Um, but as I'm sure a lot of people know, this summer we had a big string of protests following the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis by a police officer. And protests sprung up all across the country. There were plenty here in New York where I live. And uh, people were using bicycles as ways to get around the city very quickly. So you had big, slow-moving crowds of people on foot. But the people on bikes could kind of go up to the front, go up to the back, go wherever they wanted to and scout uh, locations and scout the route uh, very quickly. And the street riders and, and some other groups split off basically and said, you know what, we've got all these people on bikes, let's organize bike protests. And so, uh, you know, a, a march on foot as important as, as those are might be able to cover two or three neighborhoods in a few hours, but a, a protest on bikes could cover 10 or 15 neighborhoods in even less time. And so you had rides that would start in Brooklyn, not too far from where I live and would wind up in the Bronx, you know, very far away and you could do it and be home for dinner. Um, and so it was just bringing the cause and the attention to the black lives matter movement to lots of different neighborhoods all at once. And, um, also just brought in lots of different types of people. It was, it was really something to be a part of. And the street riders organized this so quickly, um, with, you know, very little advance notice. They it just sprung up in a matter of weeks. Uh, it was really a sight to behold. So, so do you think uh, the fact that you fought for for the protest this summer, Black Lives Matter, and all the attention on that, the use of bicycles on that, uh, do you think it will uh, impact the any have any you know long term change in the way bicycles are being used in a city like New York? It's hard to say. I, I think street riders. Some other groups that have sprung up, Justice Rides, there's a group called MBR. They have organized a lot of different protest rides in the last year. And they've also spun off in ways where they are organizing social rides, where they'll just meet up at Grand Army Plaza, which is near the big park, Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And it's a really great place for people, especially people of color, who want to get out and ride but might feel more comfortable doing it in a group as opposed to alone well they will just get up and they're, they're teaching everything like basic city bike riding skills basic maintenance how to change a flat um, and so i think that if that is an offshoot of the movement 
that'll be great. It'll get more people on bikes, different types of people on bikes, really expanding, you know, what it means to be a cyclist. It's, it's a great thing to see. So I do think that there will be a positive outcome from that. On top of that, obviously the pandemic, like a lot of people are turning to bikes as a way to avoid public transportation or just to kind of, you know, pass the time for exercise during lockdown. So, um, you've seen a real cycling boom here in New York. I think all of these things are related and have added up to create more cycling. That cycling boom uh, following the, the pandemic, you've seen that in New York, uh, but uh, is that is that something that you see uh, outside the big cities as well? Or is it actually, because I've, I've seen numbers that the car sales has actually gone up uh, in, in 2020 because of, You know, suddenly people are even more dependent on on a car, uh, at least outside the larger cities. You've definitely seen it in big cities, in small cities, and small towns. There, there's a bike shortage. Um, you know, whether people are buying them because they don't want to go to the gym anymore and they don't want to be inside and they'd rather just like ride bikes around a park somewhere with their kids, or whether they're going to wind up using them for transportation in the long term remains to be seen. I think in New York. Chicago, San Francisco, Boston, you know, bigger cities where there's already a decent mix of walking and biking and transit, you'll see long-term boom effects. It's hard to say what will happen in smaller cities where there hasn't been as much of an investment already in cycling infrastructure. Um, it, you can imagine that, like you said, if, if more people are buying cars and the traffic stinks, people will just take those bikes they bought during the pandemic and leave them in their basements or their garages and and take the car to Have you seen any uh, extra additional investments in bicycle infrastructure uh, for the last year because of the pandemic, or or is that still something that you know is, is going slowly, step by step? It's still somewhat slow. New York added some bike lanes, but most of the bike lanes they added were things they were probably going to do anyway, and they just accelerated the timeline of installation. Um, they did add some bike parking near hospitals. A couple of key cycling routes got sped up and installed with good protected uh, lanes and infrastructure. So that's been good. You know, we haven't seen anything in the U.S. along the lines of Paris, which is you know installed hundreds of, of hundreds of kilometers of of cycling routes. Um, we haven't seen anything along those lines. But you know, uh, Oakland, California, installed a network of slow streets where they limited car traffic and people could walk and bike on them. And a few cities have, Boston has done some really good work. Uh, Minneapolis had already installed a lot of good cycling lanes and was adding a few more. But I, I don't think anybody has really said like, okay, we're going we're gonna to do it like Milan has done, like Paris has done, or, or London. Nobody's really taken that aggressive a step. No, no. But New York still was already uh, on track, uh, I guess, in terms of, you know, having more focus on bicycle infrastructure and so on. So so this would probably just add more to the incentive to to uh, to do more of it in the future. Yes, and I think, you know, New York has 10 plus years of investment in cycle lanes and our bike share program is Uh, eight or nine years old at this point. So we have a pretty good head start. Washington, D.C., you know, they have a huge bicycle share program, capital bike share, and lots of bike lanes. So I think the cities that had already invested a lot of time and energy and money into installing bike lanes are, are well positioned for whatever comes next. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. So what about the winter? Uh, the winter in New York can be a bit tough, I guess. Uh, do people ride during the winter as well? 
Uh, yeah, you know, there was just a, a survey released that showed bicycle counts over some of the bridges that cross into Manhattan and other key cycling routes, and it showed really big gains in bicycle riding compared to this time last year. And our winters are, you know, they can be tough, but thanks to climate change, they're they're not as tough as they used to be. Um, we we have we've had one snowstorm where things actually stuck this year and um, not much else. It's, um, I mean, the last few days, it's been about freezing, basically, but not, not terrible, not below freezing. Um, and I think it's the old adage that there, there's no such thing as, as, you know, bad weather, only bad gear. I think there's really no such thing as bad weather, only bad infrastructure. If you build the infrastructure, you have bike share, you have protected bicycle lanes, you have places where people feel safe from cars, they're going to ride. And so, um, you know, I, I, I will ride on a protected bicycle lane on, a, on quiet routes in all kinds of weather. What I won't do is ride on a shared street with fast moving traffic when there's ice or puddles or sleet, because I don't want to slip and fall and be thrown into traffic. Um, that, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the problem. And if you can fix that problem, people will ride. So um, I think the whole winter cycling thing is uh, often overblown. People are pretty hardy if you give them the chance. Yeah. yeah. The thing is that we often hear, and you hear it here in Norway as well, but we have pretty cold weather, uh, to be honest. Uh, we often hear this, yeah, but okay, it's, it's, cycling is good, but you cannot ride uh, during winter where it's way below freezing and so on. And it's just like, yeah, okay, as you say, if the infrastructure is there, it's not going to be a problem because it's just a matter of putting on uh, some extra clothing. Uh, and I, I'd rather say I had uh, one of my previous guests, Peter Walker, who, who wrote this book about how cycling can save the world. He said this, that you would much rather in in freezing temperatures, you would much rather be uh, on a bicycle instead of just standing waiting for the bus uh, because that's often the alternative that you have here. So, you know, I agree. C- cycling infrastructure, that's what uh, what will make the difference. Right. And no one would say, let's roll up all the sidewalks during the winter because, you know, it's too cold to walk. You just put on an extra sweater and a hat and you go out and you live your life. Um, If you have the good infrastructure, people will do it. And I don't think they need much in terms of advice or this is the gear you need and this is how to do it. They just need a safe place to go. So, Doc, what do you think uh, the war on cars? Do you think you will uh, you will uh, you will win that war? Well, we have to win, right? I think climate change is the big overarching theme of everything right now. We really are in a climate emergency and we have to get people out of cars, um, even if people switch to electric cars, which is all well and good. They still take up way too much space. We, we really need people to be using space more efficiently and bicycles are a great way to do that. Um, really one of the best ways to do that. Transit you know, is complementary to cycling and vice versa. So we need more investment in that. I, I do think, will we win? Look, cars have had a hundred year head start <laughs> in the in the war. And so it's going to be hard to catch up here in the US. But there does seem to be growing awareness. You know, when I started doing bicycle advocacy 10 or 11 years ago, the bike advocates, people like me, we were kind of seen as the weirdos at the extreme, the fringe, the zealots. And now it's much more socially acceptable. It's kind of seen as inevitable. Um, all kinds of people, all ages, all abilities you'll see out there. And so cyclists are not really weirdos anymore. And they're not even really cyclists. They're just New Yorkers or 
whatever city you're from, there are people who like to bike and people who like to bike for transportation. Uh, and, and that's how I define myself. I'm not a cyclist. I, you know, I, I can change a flat. I'm not really hip to all the mechanics of my bike. The, the bike shop will do for everything else. But I do like to use my bicycle as an efficient mode of transportation. That's it, period. And, and I want more people to experience the joy and the just pleasure and the time savings and the money savings and the health benefits of, of that. Yeah, but that's 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 good to hear about you uh, defining yourself as a cyclist. That's that's probably not the right thing to do. It's just someone moving around. Uh, yeah. With a, uh, oh, and, and I do look. I I put on spandex and I love to go on fast bike rides on my road bike. I lo I used to race, um, do triathlons and stuff like that. And I still like to do that every now and then. But I don't I, I don't define myself as a cyclist. And then, then the good thing I saw that uh, the the new president John Bi Joe Biden I just saw that uh, I saw a photo of him out riding actually using a bicycle for you know just for getting some exercise. So at least we are seeing. Uh, I know it's it's, it's not going to make any difference that he does that from time to time, but at least uh, it's good to see. No, the, but he has uh, appointed really great people to the Department of Transportation who really understand cycling and, and the new secretary of transportation, which will be Pete Buttigieg, former mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He had transformed a lot of streets down there for, uh, for cycling and really seems to get it at a gut level. And he's young and he has a really great team behind him. Polly Trottenberg, who is his number two, was a former DOT commissioner here in New York. And lots of other people who are joining the administration also understand cycling and transit for all the climate and congestion benefits that we all know very well yeah i heard you talked about uh, pete Buttigieg that you wanted to have him on uh, on the podcast so i hope you'll succeed in that because uh, <laughs> yeah that would be interesting to hear because uh, yeah he, he might be uh, be your president one day i guess uh, if he if he continues i think that's his goal yeah That's a, that's another discussion. We'll yes. leave that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but uh, Doc, thanks for for joining me today. It's been great hearing about, and I want to wish you uh, all the best of uh, luck with the war on cars, both the podcast and uh, the actual, you know, changing the mindset of people to actually, you know, uh, not having so much focus on the car and, and instead using other means of transportation as well. So thanks very much for for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah.